Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Disney reported worse than expected results, and uh, the parks and resorts, one of their you know, most dependable businesses, came in a little bit short. Uh, to get the latest on what's going on at Disney as they make this big pivot from or to streaming, we welcome our good friend Porter Bibb. He's a managing partner at Media Tech Capital Partners. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Porter, kind of an ugly quarter last night, stocks trading off. What do you, what's the key takeaway for you? Well, the the market hadn't digested the investments uh, that that Disney has made. Not only the seventy three billion dollars that they used to buy Fox, uh, but five billion for the the part of Hulu that Comcast didn't own, and they've been spending like uh, drunken sailors uh, getting Disney Plus and ESPN Plus organized uh, as streaming sites, and they will they will continue to spend. Uh, about a half a billion dollars will go into Disney Plus between now and November 12th when uh, it actually launches. I'm struggling to understand not the streaming side of this, but really the theme parks, the idea that the Star Wars uh, Galaxy's Edge didn't yeah. didn't fly. And what does this say about their ability to predict uh, audiences and revenues in this area? I think what they didn't predict at Disney was the crowds, <laughs> because that Star Wars uh, new theme park was heavily, heavily promoted, and it was over overbooked and jammed, and people just decided, I'm not taking my kids to this thing that uh, I can't get into. It's it's an all-day event, and it, it's really spectacular, and it, it will smooth things out over, wait, over wait, the wait. course. I, I want to make sure that I understand this. In other words, you're saying that because it was so popular and because people, people couldn't get tacket, right. tickets, that it sort of diminished demand, but do you think that they didn't inaccurately predict the enthusiasm for it? That's that's exactly right. And I, I think you're going to see with, with uh, the new Star Wars film coming out at Christmas time, again, um, a, a huge new surge of interest in, in that the theme parks and, and the merchandise are, are the biggest revenue and profit drivers at Disney right now. They represent more than 40% of Disney's total revenue. Uh, they were down very marginally, a couple of points uh, for this last quarter, but that's because they had to invest in building the Star Wars uh, park, and they, they're suffering modestly in China. Uh, and, and in Hong Kong with the protests over there. But those are temporary setbacks, and Disney will will just go exploding at the end of this year with, with the streaming networks that they're launching. Uh, one of the, the things that nobody talks about, uh, ESPN is p- best positioned with their live sports coverage and the, the hundreds of millions, billions that they've sunk into sports rights to be the platform for online betting which is coming. There are nine states that have legalized online betting now. Uh, By the end of 2020, after the election, I think you're going to see 25 or 30 states going, because it's found revenue for them, and it beats the the pants off of the state lotteries and the other other revenue generators that states have. So you you go to the Magic Kingdom and just lay down a bet. You know, I don't. Wait, I'm not sure what, we're going to see. Out, laid out about what on Snow White? <laughs> exactly on the Knicks game tonight. So, um, so Porter, one of the uh, big announcements I thought from last night's uh, results was the company kind of announced a, a bundled streaming 
product. They're going to be putting all this, all their streaming products together for one price. What can you tell yeah. us about that? Uh, that was a blockbuster move by Bob, Bob Iger uh, to, to counter the, the, the fall off in, in uh, the share price that uh, his modest earnings uh, miss uh, created. Twelve ninety nine for Hulu, Disney Plus, and ESPN Plus. It's an unstoppable, untouchable idea. And the question is, how long can they keep it? Because they're not going to make any profit with that kind of a price. And there, there's no advertising, no, no um, um, dual revenue stream that, that any of those, except Hulu has a modest uh, service that you can buy, pay, pay less and get some advertising. But even then, they've cut the advertising way back. So Disney shares down uh, 4.7%, a pretty uh, yeah. fierce response to the disappointing earnings. I'm just wondering, uh, just to give you a sense, at one point that was the biggest drop in the in the shares since 2015. Porter, I, I, I guess, what is going to uh, sort of turn around the impression here? Because it seems like the disappointment was in the revenues, but you know, with the 1299 package that they offered, the, the bundling services of a bunch of different right. things, it seems really competitive. I mean, the whole net Netflix killer story is still on the table. So Disney is not a Netflix killer. Netflix is is going to be around. Thank you very much. Uh, the the economic model is not sustainable, and someone at some point in the game is going when the, when the share price comes down to a reasonable level is going to pick them up. There there is no shortage of of uh, content less buyers waiting right now. You have CBS Viacom coming together today or tomorrow um, for. Verizon wanted them a year ago. They're going to be first in line, knocking the doors down. People don't talk about it, but Microsoft needs content. They have 80 million Xbox uh, internet connections and just games on the Xbox. But why can't they show all of the content that movies and television can create? Then then Apple, Uh, Oprah and Steven Spielberg are not enough to carry Apple into the streaming wars and do it it well and do it successfully. So there's there's no shortage of buyers. Um, Disney unfortunately for the rest of them has almost no cost of content because they have such a spectacular archive and they're putting the Iger has announced that they're putting all of their brand new movies the the, the Avengers the the new Star Wars movie this Christmas the new Frozen uh, those, those are blockbusters that cost them nothing to put on the streaming service. so you Porter you mentioned the cost associated with streaming and the companies disclosed that yeah. uh, won't break even I guess until fiscal 2024 so still several right. years away do you think investors are going to be that patient well, <laughs> and it's a building business. We're seeing a, 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 a cataclysmic transition of media from legacy media, cable, and, and, and satellite to streaming. And people who want to get in, you have to realize Disney, Disney's up 27% since January. They, they dropped 4% yesterday and today, but there's still a lot of latitude there and investors realize that the assets that they have are almost untouchable in the entertainment world. Certainly, if you have a child, I'll just say that. But Porter Bibb, thank you so much for being with us. Porter Bibb, managing partner at MediaTech Capital Partners.
It is time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. And luckily for us, we've got a Bloomberg Opinion contributor who is stellar when it comes to all things in markets, but particularly fixed income. Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research, uh, coming to us from Chicago. Jim, the real story today, this week, this year, for the past 10 years has been bonds and bond yields heading to record lows today around the world, near record lows in the United States when you look at the 30-year yield. And I'm wondering... Why is this now causing concern rather than support for risk assets? You know, I, you're right that we are very close to, we're like five basis points away from a record low now in the 30-year. And I think that the concern is in a unique situation that I don't remember ever seeing. We've had one rate cut. The market over the next year is pricing in four more rate cuts, a total of five rate cuts. I can't find a single economist or a Federal Reserve official that thinks that the Fed should or the Fed should cut rates five times between the last one and four more coming. So the market itself is an outlier. The market is seeing problems down the road. It is trying to communicate that through the inverted yield curve, through the plunge in yields. And it seems like the economic community and the Fed is not listening. And it's getting worried that since they're not listening, I have to now price in an even worse outcome. And we're caught in this spiral now with interest rates falling and falling and falling. So, Jim, how surprised were you to wake up this morning and see that we had rate cuts coming out of New Zealand and India and Thailand? Surprised in that all three of them were more than expected. There was an expectation that there'd be a cut in India, but it was larger than expected. There was not a, for Thailand, and they did cut as well. And New Zealand cut by 50 basis points, which it's only done during the global financial crisis and the Christchurch earthquake. So those were big deals. So it was very surprising. Do you think that this is signaling uh, that there is more of a real possibility of a near-term recession globally and in the U.S.? Because that certainly seems to be the indication of yield curves around the world. Yeah, I think so. Um, if you look at the data that is coming out of Europe, especially today, one of the big wirehouses des uh, described some of the German uh, data that came out today as disastrous. It's been such a bad number. And we, it matters. Global growth is slowing down. It matters for the U.S. We cannot ignore it. And that is weighing on us as well, too. It's obviously weighing on the rest of the world, which is why we're now approaching outside of the U.S., Half of the sovereign bonds in the world are now negative outside of the U.S. So, Jim, you mentioned that the Fed uh, or the markets are discounting four more rate cuts by the Fed, although the data uh, may not support that. What do you actually think the Fed is going to do? They are, in fact, you know, as they say, data dependent. Yeah, I think they're going to cut rates in September. The problem is, is that they think that they're pretty sure that they're going to cut by 25, and there's some argument that maybe, you know, there might be something that comes along that they don't cut. The market's pretty sure they're going to cut by 50, because it's now almost at a 50-50 chance, the way it's priced in, that there will be a 50 basis point cut. So this will be the game we'll play. The Fed will follow, yeah, we'll give you great cuts, but the market will be screaming, no, you're going to give us more than you think and faster than you think. So we're all headed in the same direction. It's just the speed at which the market thinks the Fed should go and which the Fed wants to go at.
Jim, here's what I'm really struggling with. I'm looking at break-even rates, uh, sort of a gauge of inflation over the next five to 10 years, or at least where people are pricing it in. It's come down, but it's not at the lowest point since the financial crisis, the way that bond uh, that, that, that the yield curves are. And I'm struggling to understand what the implication here is. Real yields just are going to continue to go lower, even if growth grinds along. I mean, is that the, the main takeaway here? Yes, and there is a nuance we need to put into those market measures of inflation expectation to break even rates. If you go back over the last several years and look at all of the times that it was lower, you know, February of 2016, 2012, and you look at crude oil, crude oil was down 50% or more off of its high. Crude oil is down, but nowhere near that right now. So what's driving these break-evens lower, these expectations of lower inflation, is not the energy market falling apart, but a belief that non-energy inflation, which is core inflation, is coming down. That's what I think is really worrisome. This is not 2016 when the break-evens fell a lot more because crude oil went from $100 to $26 and just wiped out the energy part of the equation. This is everything else that seems to be falling. Jim Bianco, thank you so very much. Jim is president and founder of Bianco Research. He's also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. You can read more on this and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or on the terminal by typing O-P-I-N go. President Trump coming out yet again against the Federal Reserve, basically saying the problems in the U.S., not China. We are stronger than ever. Money is pouring into the U.S. while China is losing companies by the thousands to other countries and their currencies under siege. Our problem is a Federal Reserve that is too proud to admit their mistake of acting too fast and tightening too much and that I was right. And it goes on. This is a three-tweet tweet storm. Joining us now to talk about what this implies uh, for markets and how it's being interpreted and, frankly, what is the Fed's conundrum is going forward, Tom Orlick, chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. I'm just wondering what your impression is of these tweets. Is Trump right So I think there's certainly a consensus that the Federal Reserve was too aggressive um, at the end of 2018 um, and that uh, that rate hike misjudged the state of the economy, misjudged the mood uh, in the markets, uh, and now they're having to undo some of the damage which that did. Um, Where he's wrong, I think, um, is on the idea, firstly, that politicians should be intervening in monetary policy. Uh, We have independent central banks for a good reason. The White House weighing in um, before breakfast, lunch and dinner doesn't make their job any easier. Um, Secondly, is monetary policy effective against trade tariffs? Can you cut interest rates to offset the drag caused by Trump's trade war? Um, I think the answer to that is probably no businesses see lower rates as an incentive to invest, but when they're so worried about supply chains being broken, about access to markets being blocked, they're not going to make that investment. So, Tom, it's the market is pricing in, uh, you know, as much as four more rate cuts uh, over the next year or so. What is the market seeing that maybe um, the Federal Reserve is not? So, I think the markets are forward-looking. 
the Federal Reserve is looking at the data and the data is telling us about the past. Um, so the market is anticipating an escalating trade war, chilling US exports, breaking US supply chains, hitting the US consumer in the pocketbook, uh, and a Federal Reserve which is being forced to respond to that. Um, the risk, I think, is that we have a spiral of higher tariffs and lower rates and in a year's time, the economy is on the cusp of a very serious downturn and the Federal Reserve has not enough firepower left to deal with it. So it's not just the Federal Reserve. We've got central banks around the world that are cutting rates more than people have expected. We got the three rate cuts uh, from three, three different central banks in Asia overnight. And I'm just wondering, I mean, do you think that basically the Fed is given a green light to central banks around the world to go into an easing cycle, perhaps prematurely? I think there's two things going on, Lisa. Um, so the first thing is that central banks are all responding to the same threat. The trade war isn't just a problem for China and the US. It's a problem for most other major economies in the world. And that's why we're seeing so many central banks responding to it. The second point, and I think this is where uh, your comment is, is completely on point, is that Fed easing enables other central banks to ease. If the US is lowering rates, other central banks can and do lower rates without concerns about currency weakness and capital outflows. And that's why we're seeing uh, Thailand and other emerging markets uh, taking advantage of that opportunity. So, Tom, you lived and worked in Beijing for many years. You have a good sense of uh, the economic situation there. What do you think the Chinese are really looking to achieve from a trade deal, if anything? And what is kind of the timing that you think that they might be under? So I don't have a, a window into China's uh, leadership compound, uh, Zhongnanhai, um, but um, my sense is that the Chinese view on uh, negotiations with Trump has changed in the last few months. Um, we had that move at the beginning of the summer to hike tariffs from 10% to 25%, um, unexpected. We had that surprise threat of tariffs against Mexico after the US had negotiated new NAFTA. Um, and now we have uh, the 10% tariffs on $300 billion and the move to label China a currency manipulator. Uh, I think all of these things are convincing Beijing that actually the chances of a win-win deal with Trump on trade are pretty low. And so I think what they're doing is buckling down the hatches, and trying to last through to November 2020 when they hope that they'll have someone else in the White House who they find it easier to talk to. Tom, can the uh, tariffs and what we've seen so far with the trade war send the global economy into recession? So global recession is a big call. Um, the but US. How about let's start with the US. So US recession is a big call as well. Uh, unemployment is at a 50-year low. How about Luxembourg? <laughs> Luxembourg's much smaller, but unfortunately, <laughs> I haven't flown over it recently. Uh, so per the economist's rule that you can't make a judgment on an economy you haven't flown <laughs> okay. over, uh, I can't make a judgment. Um, but let's come back to the US. Um, yes, the trade war is a very serious threat to growth, not just because of what the tariffs are doing, but because of the chilling impact of uncertainty on business and consumer confidence and financial markets. Um, 
at the same time, we have unemployment at a 50-year low uh, and wage growth running at more than 3%. The consumer is the main driver of, you, of the US economy. Um, so yes, we're concerned. Yes, we're looking at um, some indications of some weakness yep. coming into the labor market, but we'd want to see more signs of the labor market crumbling uh, before we made a big call like that. Tom Orlick, thank you very much. Tom is a chief economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Well, what I thought was some very interesting news coming out of FedEx, the company announced that uh, the ground delivery contract with Amazon won't be renewed when it expires at the end of this month, the company said in a statement. To get the latest on this and what it means for FedEx and the transportation industry, uh, we welcome Satish Jindal, president of SJ Consulting, and Thomas Black, transportation reporter for Bloomberg. Uh, Thomas, let's start with you. Kind of just give us the background here on what FedEx is doing with one of the biggest shippers in the world. They're pulling back. Uh, we knew this was coming. They, they announced in June that they were no longer going to do the next day air service for Amazon. So uh, this is an incremental step in that, and they're pulling back on, on the ground. And they, it's a signal that they see Amazon more as a competitor as it builds out its network. And they're going to try to scoop up other customers for e-commerce as it grows. Satish Jindal, uh, president of SJ Consulting, come on in here because I'm wondering how much this bet is a good one on FedEx's part. How big of an infrastructure does Amazon.com have right now? And is FedEx going to be in a better position than Amazon as a result of this move? You know, this is uh, the domination of the contract first is really an academic because uh, based on a lot of data we have, FedEx was not handling any packages because Amazon has cut them off completely. They give them zero packages, so it is academic. The only relevance of dominating that contract is that during peak time, uh, Amazon will not be able to rely on FedEx for any volume, but Amazon has built its own network of last mile delivery to such a point that today they are delivering over 4 million packages a day with their own drivers, and they're continuing to ramp that up. So, And they've got the post office, they've got UPS, and they've got other private small carriers to deliver for them, and this is no headache for Amazon. They will not miss a heartbeat not having FedEx. Instead, FedEx is going to have to work hard to replace that capacity and that volume with others that doesn't come easy. Uh, yeah, Thomas, I just want to follow up on that point. It seems like when I think about Amazon, I would think that would just be a huge, huge customer for FedEx. And, you know, I think about a fixed cost system like, uh, you know, FedEx has. How will they make up that lost volume? Well, they talked about the volume with Amazon being about 1.3% of their total sales, which if you do just a back of the envelope calculations around $900 million. So it, it seems a lot, but it, it's a company that does almost $70 billion in sales per year. So it, it can handle the hit. Um, UPS, on, on the other side, probably does more business with Amazon, and that partnership is continuing. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over time. Satish, if this is more of a cosmetic type of move on the part of FedEx or uh, a PR kind of, I don't want to call it a stunt, but something to sort of make a statement more than anything else, what are they hoping happens from it? 
I think this is a way for them to embrace themselves with Walmart and get Walmart to realize that they are uh, not working with Walmart's biggest competitor and that to have Walmart make FedEx their primary carrier and give them more business than, and divert whatever they're giving to UPS to FedEx. Other than that, if I'm a shipper, it doesn't make a difference to me that I would rather do business with FedEx if they're not doing business with Amazon. That never happens. And this is a more a negative for FedEx than for Amazon, in my view. So, Thomas, I know that uh, the uh, FedEx is kind of saying it's in a transition year and they're forecasting uh, earnings to uh, decline. What's really problem? What's really creating the problems there at FedEx? Well, they have some problems in their European business. They acquired a company called TNT Express, and that was back in May of uh, 2016 when they closed that deal. And they still are grappling with the integration of that company. That's that's been a uh, a drag on on FedEx, and uh, they're also seeing the international business weaken a little bit with some of the the trade spat that's going on. So those those are two main things that are weighing on. Satish, who is Walmart relying on now? I mean, in yes, terms of who, who, Satish, I mean, who, who is who is uh, who is FedEx going to sort of take business away from? Say that again. Well, you said that Walmart could be the biggest winner from the FedEx or basically that FedEx is trying to win over Walmart's uh, business. So I'm wondering who Walmart is doing shipping business with right now. They, they are doing a big amount of business with FedEx, but they're also giving to UPS, and this is a, a effort by them to try and have some of that business going to others, including UPS, be diverted to FedEx. Thank you so much for being with us. Satish Jindal, president of SJ Consulting. Thomas Black, transportation reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.